We're going to devote time and attention to a passage of Scripture which has been described as probably by most scholars as the one of the most neglected books of the New Testament. And it's a, this distinction, I don't really want to call it an honor, goes to the letter Jude, which, of course, you've opened to. Jude is often overlooked because of its brevity. It's only 25 verses long. It is sometimes neglected because of its emphasis upon judgment, judgment upon false teachers who have infiltrated the church and who are perverting the gospel and troubling the church. It is often overlooked because of the severity of its tone, in particular to the the content of the main body of the letter. There are passages that appear also strange to the reader in that they quote from non-canonical books, such as the book of Enoch. And it gets overlooked because of its proximity to the book of Revelation. We often over just flip right past it to make our way there. In fact, oftentimes when I tell people to turn to Jude, I tell them to turn to Revelation and turn one page over, and there you go, you found it. Nevertheless, this, this short letter should not be ignored. Some of the most beautiful statements in all of Scripture about God's sustaining grace can be found in Jude. And it is those statements which initially draw most believers to this letter, if you've ever read it. And it's those beautiful statements about God's grace that form a primary reason why we're going to consider the contents of this letter this afternoon. And Lord willing, any other time that I come, we'll just continue on moving through this letter together. And if you're not familiar, like I said, how to find it, which I'm assuming you're already there, just go to Revelation, turn one page to the left, and we're there together. So this afternoon, let us neglect no longer this letter. If you would, let us begin in Jude, starting in verse 1 and making our way right to the end. Jude 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dream, on, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael contended with the devil, 
was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at our love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are the grumblers, malcontents, Following their own sinful desires, they are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there would be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, Through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And this is the word of our triune God. Today we're predominantly going to be looking at at the first two verses of this letter. And the appropriate place to begin this afternoon is by by introducing you to the author of this epistle, the author of this letter. More accurately, we're going to allow the author himself to introduce himself to us. And since this letter has been commonly neglected, sometimes people aren't familiar with who wrote it, and so most likely the author of this letter is unfamiliar unfamiliar to you. And so one of the most debated issues or mysteries in the New Testament is who wrote the book of Hebrews. Many people believe that it was the Apostle Paul. However, the greatest of scholars throughout history really couldn't come to any agreement or say with any certainty whether it was the Apostle Paul. And so that debate goes on. However, Jude is one of those books of the Bible where we know that we know exactly who wrote 
And I know what you're probably thinking. You're saying, well, look, I'm looking at my Bible. It says right here, Jude. Well, the reason why we know it was written by Jude isn't because it's the title of the book. The book of Esther wasn't written by Esther, and the book of Ruth was not written by Ruth, and First and Second Timothy wasn't written by Timothy, but for Timothy. The reason we know Jude is the author of this letter is because he identifies himself in verse 1. He says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ. So his name is Jude, which really isn't all that helpful if you think about it, because Jude, in the context of, of first century Judaism, Jude was an extremely common name, a popular name. Jude was as common a name as Bob or Jim is today. There were multiple men in the New Testament named Jude, Judas, or Judah, all derivatives of the same name. And so the author kind of helps us out here with further clarification. And how he does that is he says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now you're probably thinking, so James, that's, that's a rare name, is it? And no, it's probably one of the second most common names during that time. It would be like Bob, the brother of Jim. It really doesn't help you. But the very fact he says his brother tells us something. Normally, if you've read through the Bible, you'll notice that it'll always, people will be introduced this way or described this way. It'll say, the son of. It would say, Jude, the son of. You'd use the name of the father. That was how you distinguished the, the Judas, James, and Johns from all the other Judas, James, and Johns. But now you would only say brother of. If the brother was particularly prominent, an important person, a famous person, something like that. And, and in the early church, New Testament context, when we read Jude, the brother of James, well, who exactly, boys and girls, think about this for a second. Who exactly would be a prominent James? Well, the first thought we should have is James, the, the person who wrote the book of, book of James. The man who presided over the Jerusalem council. The only guy that Paul met with when he became a Christian. That, that's a very prominent James. So it narrows it down quite a bit. And Matthew refers to this James in the gospel that bears his own name, where he wrote in Matthew 13, verses 54 through 55. He says, And coming to his hometown, speaking of Christ, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And if we needed any more proof, very early church tradition has it that the book of Jude was written by, like James, a brother in the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm guessing some of you would probably, who are particular, would qualify half-brother because they might have shared the same mother but obviously not the same father. This, this is the Jude who wrote the letter that we now consider this afternoon. And apparently Jude was a, a humble man. It is apparent to us by how he identifies himself. In the beginning, 
of his letter. He, just, he does it in a particular way. And it's also apparent by what he has left unsaid about himself. So it's apparent by what he's said, how he's identified himself, and, and also by what he has left undone. I'll try to explain that. We see that he's humbled by what he said in this way. He, he identifies himself as, as a servant of Jesus Christ. And I don't necessarily like that translation as much. The, the term that Jude used is not diakonos, but he's, which means servant, but doulos, which actually means slave. And James, his brother, does the very same thing as his letter. He begins his letter, James, a servant, a a bond slave of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Both brothers identifying themselves the exact same way. Now, let me try to explain to you what a, a bond slave was. If someone became so indebted, they were so in debt to someone else, and they just literally couldn't pay it off, technically that person could be thrown into what was called debtor's prison. And the idea behind debtor's prison was that if you, you just go there and hopefully eventually work your way out, out of prison, but it never happened. And if you didn't want to go to debtor's prison, what you could do is you could work out uh, an arrangement with the person who you owed the money to. And they would take you into their home and you would live there as a slave. And you would work and work and work and work until hopefully, eventually, and possibly, you eventually paid off that debt and then you'd be set free again. That was the idea behind it. But what if, just, just think for a second, what if that slave says, I love my master. I don't want to go out. I, I want to stay here and be part of this family. I want to serve his household. Well, then, then that slave could go to his master, and there's a, a procedure, which I won't go into, uh, that would show and signify and a sign that this, this slave was now part of this household forever. A bond servant, or really a bond slave. And so you can decide that I love my household and not leave. And so essentially you became a bond slave by debt and by choice. Which is kind of like a, a foreshadowing, a, a type of what Christ does for us and what our relationship then is with him as a result. We are bond slaves. And this is why Jude and his brother James, both siblings of Christ in the flesh, identify themselves. And so Jude was a humble man because he identified himself as Christ's slave. But what did he leave unsaid? Now just think for a second, if you're like me, a lot of times when I, when I approach the scriptures, I put myself in the shoes of the individuals, which can be dangerous because you're reading yourself in the text. But in this case, putting yourself in Jude's shoes... If, if I was Jude, my flesh would be, shouldn't be doing that. My flesh would be, I want clout. I want to make sure these people believe me. Well, what would I do? I, I would describe myself as Jude, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. So why, why would he refrain 
from being a name dropper? Why would he refrain from identifying himself with the family relation to the Lord Jesus Christ? He refrains because he has been humbled. He's been humbled by the realization that his older brother was the Christ, the Messiah. However, that wasn't always the way that it was. You've got to keep in mind that this is the person whom it is said in John that not even his brothers believed him. And of who, who Mark gives testimony that they, his family, James and John included, went out to seize him because they were saying he has, he's out of his mind, he's crazy. So something absolutely and truly amazing must have happened to make such a radical change. It, it seems that somewhere between the resurrection and ascension, Jude and his brother James became believers in Christ. There was a time when Jude simply rejected the idea that his big brother was the promised Messiah. But at some point, at some point after seeing the risen Christ, Jude became a believer and now describes himself as a servant, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. He knows what his relationship with Jesus really is. He makes no reference to his earthly privilege of his brotherly relationship to Jesus Christ. He, his predominant relationship with Jesus Christ is not as brother in the flesh, but as I am his servant, I am his bond slave. Rather, he, he accents his submission to Jesus Christ. He is a slave of a brother he once did not believe in and thought was insane. I'm an only child, so I, I can't really imagine this. But those of you who have siblings, what would it take for you to believe that your sibling was God incarnate? It would be impossible for you because your sibling isn't. But it was impossible for Jude and James apart from God's working in their life. And their brother was God incarnate. It takes God working in our hearts to reveal Christ to us. Jude is a man who has been humbled by the gospel. You can, be a, you can be a half-brother of Christ, but you cannot be a half-bondservant of Jesus. You cannot have two masters. And after this humble introduction of himself, what Jude does is he provides us with a humbling description of a Christian. Jude 1, the second half of the verse says, To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm assuming that we all have this tendency that I have, and that is to quickly like skim over the opening words of greetings. 
of letters, and sometimes that app actually happens in the New Testament as well, where I'll, I'll, I'll sometimes skim over the introductions, the greetings in the New Testament letters. That's at least my tendency. My, my eyes, my mind just kind of, just kind of gloss over the words, giving them a little attention, assuming that they're just simply opening words that form little more than a, than a polite, formal, ancient greeting. But these words, these opening words, are no mere polite formality. They are divinely inspired. They're as divinely inspired as the rest of the letter, as the main body of the letter. These opening words are in fact filled with theological substance and they're, they're pregnant with theological purpose. They anticipate the, the primary themes of this letter and what they do is they, they prepare our hearts, the hearts of the reader, for the exhortations and the warnings that are about to follow. What we are going to learn, Lord willing, as we progress further through this letter, is that Jude's purpose for writing this letter is a call to contend for the gospel, which, which is made explicit in verses 3 and 4. But prior to exhorting the reader to contend for the gospel, Jude reminds them of the gospel, which is in verse 1. So we, we contemplate the gospel before we contend for the gospel. And so these opening words were not meant to be read quickly. They were not meant to be read flippantly. They were meant to be read slowly and considered carefully. And that's what I'm hoping we do today. It says, to those who are called. This, the word called would be one of the most frequent one-word descriptions of the Christian in the New Testament. It is, it is a common one-word description of the Christian. If you are a Christian, this one word describes why you are a Christian. The one word called is the theological explanation if you are a Christian, why you are a Christian. And Jude wants to serve your soul this afternoon. He wants to remind you this afternoon of the theological explanation for why you are a Christian, if you are a Christian. So that we experience the full impact, the full effect of this one word description upon our souls and in our lives. So that we leave here freshly amazed by the grace of God. If you are a Christian here this afternoon, it is because you've been graciously and personally and effectually called by God himself through the proclamation of the gospel. If you are a Christian, it's because God has called you. Christians don't call themselves to salvation. God calls people to salvation. If, if you're a Christian, it's because you've received a gracious call that you did not deserve. Theologians distinguish between two kinds of calls. The first is the, this general external call of God that goes to all who hear the good news of the gospel. Much like what you're hearing this afternoon. This call often goes unheeded and rejected, unfortunately. But this call, 
that Jude's speaking about is different. This call that Jude is referencing isn't simply an invitation that awaits our favorable response or decline. This call that Jude is referencing is, is, a, is a summons, an effectual call. God, God's special internal call awakens new life in a sinner. It, it, it is the work of the Holy Spirit enabling a person to believe the good news of the gospel. This call, what it does, it, it, it enacts. It enacts the response that it invites. This call reveals and it accents the sovereign grace of God. This, this call reveals and, and, and accents the initiative of God in our conversion. Jude, in effect, is stating here that divine action proceeds human decision in our conversion. He is saying that before you came to God, God came to you. If you are a Christian, remember, sometimes we forget our previous condition. Sometimes we've been in the church for so long, we forget what Ephesians 2 verse 1 actually says about us. It says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were incapable of change. You could not change the condition of your hearts. You cannot and you will not come to God. What does it mean that we are called? It means that God made the first move. God made the first move in Christ towards us. If he, if he had left it to us, if he had left it to you and me, if he left us separated from, from God by our sin, we would have just left it that way. We wouldn't have wanted to change anything. We would have just continued racking up more and more sin debt forever. But he made the first move. He called us. And as we read in Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also, I heard someone say, glorified. He also glorified. If we had not been called by him, we would have never moved from the position of darkness into light. Your conversion, if you are a Christian, did not begin with you. It did not originate with you, and it wasn't initiated with you. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. So if you are a Christian, your conversion is because of God's gracious calling through the proclamation of the gospel. And if God hadn't called you, you have to ask yourself, where would you be this afternoon? Where would you be if God did not call you? And this often leads to this question. I suppose it begs the question. It happens so often. Why did God call me? And Jude anticipates this question. And he gives it an answer. Says to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Beloved 
in God the Father, loved by God the Father. Having reminded us that we are called by God, Jude provides the divine motivation for this call. If you are a Christian today, it's because you've been called by the Father. And if you've been called by the Father, it's because you are loved by God the Father. And when you look behind the call of God, you discover that love of God the, the Father has for sinners like you and me. There's nothing at all in any single person that makes us lovable to God, but rather based solely on his sovereign pleasure for reasons beyond human comprehension, God the Father purposed in his heart to set his love on sinners and to save them. And this is absolutely mind-blowing. And so often, Christians, what we do, we, when faced with the reality of their sin, and we set it in contrast with the holiness of God, what do we do is we begin to doubt the love of God towards, towards us. Christians do it all the time. They take the sins with which they struggle with and contrast them to the holiness of God. And they rightly see that they fall short, but they wrongly conclude, God must not love me. They tend to think, think that God is merely tolerating them, often dis- disappointed with them, eager to discipline them, but love them? God the Father inspired Jude to write this. God the Father preserved this with you this day in mind to assure you, to assure us, and to convince us of his personal and particular love that he has for his children. Every every Christian can say, and every Christian should say, and every Christian must humbly say that God the Father loves me. Now, here's the problem. We, we often fall into this error, and we err when we, we think that God loves the way we do. My love for him is different than his love for me, and his love for me is different than my love for him. My love for him fluctuates. His love for me is fixed. My love for him is inconsistent on a daily basis. And his love for me remains fixed. John John Owen once said this. He said, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay upon the Father, the greatest unkindness that you can do to him is. I'm stopping here for a reason. Because I know what's happening. In your mind, you're like, okay, what's going on? What, what would that be? And likely what you're doing is what I did when I first read that quote. You, you have in your mind this laundry list of sins. And you sort them in, in order of depravity. And usually you'll take yours and you'll put them down lower. But all, all the ones that aren't necessarily equated to you, you equate higher. Like that, that sin right there, that one must be the one that's the greatest you know, sorrow to him. And, and, and the, the, the greatest unkindness. This laundry lists of sins. 
But what is the greatest sorrow and burden you, I can lay on the Father? What, what is the greatest unkindness that I can do to Him? Well, according to Owen, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him is not to believe that He loves you. That's the greatest unkindness. That's the greatest burden. How can that be? And here, if you think about it, here's why. Here's why it is the greatest unkindness and the, the, the greatest of burden and the greatest of sorrow. Because he who did not spare his own son, because he who did not spare his own son, you're not convinced that God loves you? What, I mean, what else could be done that would convince you outside of he who did not spare his own son? I mean, in light of that display, he spared not his own son. All Christians should be certain of the Father's love towards them. If you are a Christian today, it's because you've been called by the Father. And if you've been called by the Father, it's because you are loved by God the Father. And those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Our text today. We are kept by Jesus Christ. We are kept in the palm of his hand so that we will not be dropped. Nothing can snatch us from the hand of our Savior. If we had not been kept by Jesus, we would have been led astray, deceived, destroyed a thousand times over by Satan every single day. Or just even, even forget about Satan even by, by our own desires. By our own flesh, Jude's brother James writes it in his own epistle, each of us is tempted when we are lured, dragged away, and enticed, entrapped by our own sinful desires. So, so, so thank God we are kept in the hand of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Unless we're, we're tempted to view this as merely as part of a greeting, like I said, it's so easy for us to say, oh, it's just a, a nice greeting. Jude bookends his letter with the same truth. The letter ends the way it begins. It's, it, it, that's why it's called a bookend, both sides of the book. Right there, in verse 24, it says, And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Are you a Christian? Then you are because God called you, and he called you because he loved you, and if he loves you, he will assuredly keep you. And then this is Jude's prayer. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. He says, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. He's, he says, multiplied to you, not added. Now, some of you, there's a great expanse of time between this moment in your life. Some of you, I can tell, are, are at that moment because you're much, much younger. But do you remember when you first learned how to add? 
you probably realized in short order you could do so by using your fingers. So if I said to you right now, and, and I know we're Presbyterians, which means you don't talk back to me, but I'm giving you permission at this moment in time to answer a question. Five plus five, boys and girls, mean what would that be? Ten. Oh, I heard uh, adult voices, but good. You are right. Ten. Easily done on two hands. And if I said, what's ten plus ten? Many of you could say... 20, you could just take your shoes off and you could count your toes. And you're still good to go. You can still count. But then you move from addition to multiplication. You're like, oh no, I do not have enough appendages. Because when you say, what's 5 times 5? It's 25. And 25 times 25, I want to see if anyone's good. Did someone say it? Six, someone said 625. That man's dangerous. 625. And 625 times 625. Last time I did this, a kid came up after class to show me my math was right. It's 390,625. When you start multiplying, things get out of control fast. They, they get out of hand. And that is what he is wishing and praying upon these people to whom he is writing that mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to them. And brothers and sisters in Christ, this is our reality. Mercy, peace, and love are multiplied to us in Christ. Those whom God has called to himself are loved by him and kept by him until until the, the day of salvation. And we are called, we are loved, we are kept. Amen? This is what Jude is saying to us today. So brothers and sisters in Christ, this being the beginning of our journey through the letter of Jude, it is only fitting that that we follow the pattern that is set out by Jude himself. Or more importantly, that we follow the pattern ordained and inscripturated and preserved for us. That beginning that we are reminded of the gospel prior to being exhorted to contend for the gospel. Are you a Christian? Then you are because God called you. He called you because he loved you. And if he loves you, he will assuredly keep you. And as you contemplate on the gospel from now until the next time you're together or the next time we go through Jude, may God cause you to experience verse 2. And the same grace of God that called believers to faith is multiplied to them and will sustain them until the end. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for your goodness and we give you thanks that you gave us your word. Lord, grant to us the faith that comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You've caused all your holy word to be written for our learning. You've called us because we are beloved of God the Father. 
And we are kept for Christ Jesus. What a glorious and wonderful truth that we, your children, are loved, called, and kept. And you lavish this love upon us in the most extraordinary and wonderful of ways. And mercy, peace, and love is multiplied in our lives in Jesus Christ. Help us to glorify Christ, point to Christ, and rejoice in Christ. For Christ is the finish line towards which we run. He is the prize for which we run, and He is the strength by which we run. He is everything. And by the grace of Christ, for the love of Christ, and in the name of Christ, we pray. And we all say, Amen.